Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I get an opportunity to sit down with John Boyle, who's a director at Mojo Logic. So, um, welcome, John. Hello, Darren. Um, look, uh, one of the things that is always fascinating for me, and I was a copywriter for 15 years, and that's the use of language. And I think the uh, the term weasel word, which was Paul Keating's um, uh, uh, scriptwriter, wasn't it? What was his name? Yeah, look, Don Watson was Don the, Watson. That's he, it. He, he was the man that that made it popular. But it actually, you can trace it back to um, Roman mythology. Okay. You know, I mean, if you really want to get into it, I mean, Her- when, whilst Hercules was being born, apparently the goddess of childbirth was stop wanting to stop him from being born. No idea why. And the maid somehow tricked. Uh, his mother to be able to give birth. So the goddess of childbirth turned her into a weasel through the words from her mouth. Ah. So it, we think that that's the case. And also attributed to Henry V, uh, Shakespeare's Henry V. So there's... The, so there's historical precedent. It wasn't Don's invention. It wasn't his invention, his... but he certainly popularised it and it was it was in the, in, in the mists of time until he brought it alive. And I think he's done a great service, unfortunately. I don't think enough people in the corporate world, you know, pay heed. Well, and look, the, the reason I wanted to discuss language with you is I think the marketing and advertising industry is probably most creative when they come up with either new words or new interpretations and new uses for existing words that often largely become misleading or deceptive in their own right. Yes, yeah, I mean, do you have a favourite that uh, stands out? Uh, for you? Look, I, I really don't know where we'd start. I've got a number of examples that I'll, I'll certainly come up with. However, uh, I think it's worthwhile looking at uh, not so much the definition of weasel words, but weasel words are intentionally designed to deceive or obscure the truth. And I think a lot of people use weasel words for buzzwords. So I think it's important to to, 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 to separate the two. Looking again from uh, uh, Watson's view is that this it's the corporate world that's done that, and he blames great book if, you, if people love language, the death of public language, and he blames it on politicians and marketers. He thinks that they're solely responsible for the death of public language in the insidious nature of weasel words. Now, I think uh, one of his examples, and it, it's quite graphic, is the term that the military use for collateral damage, Yes, you know, which is basically, we killed innocent people. Yes. But just beautifully uh, uh, papers over that by saying, well, it's just collateral damage. Yeah, look at, uh, yes. And, and the other one that's, or the other euphemisms that you might use for sacking someone uh, you know, it's become notorious, isn't it? We're a downsizing, right-sizing. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all horrendous sort of weasel words to to make it sound as if it's not such a horrendous thing to have to do. To paper over the truth, which is deceptive or misleading in, in its terms. So, it look, is. one of the things that um, I'm uh, particularly passionate about is the word collaboration. Ah, yes. And um, I think collaboration has actually completely lost all meaning in especially marketing because people talk about collaboration as, yes, we work together, but often it means you'll do what I tell you to. Yes. 
which is not collaboration at all, is it? <laughs> no, look, exactly that. And yes, if, if you speak to someone, they'll believe that they're collaborating uh, as long as you're complying with their request. So I think in leadership, many leaders will say to me, look, I don't use my positional power. Uh, what I like to do is I like to use influence. And I said, well, that's all very well, but you're still their boss and you still have the power to sack them. So when you think they're collaborating with you, just really look at the language and force yourself to think about the specifics and the semantics. And often you find that we're not as collaborative as we think we are. Uh, the other word that I think is one of the most often used in business is win-win. Yes. You know, I mean, I, rarely do you see a true win-win. People were so competitive, and particularly in the, in the marketing <laughs> field. I mean, what a great one, win-win, which means I win and uh, you're happy. Yeah, well, you'll put up with it yeah, because exactly I'm that. in the position of power. That, that's precisely in, it. In fact, collaboration, there was a terrific uh, white paper from the Economist Business Intel or Intelligence Unit which defined the difference between collaboration, cooperation and coordination. Oh, okay. And I love that because you know, they actually defined what was required for each of those, that they're not um, uh, uh, interchangeable. The, mm -hmm. the collaboration only occurs where both parties make a contribution that both will receive a benefit from. Yes. That's collaboration. Cooperation is where one part, both parties work together, but one will get the benefit and the other is providing input to the benefit. Mm -hmm. And coordination is where one or more parties will coordinate efforts to deliver a benefit to either one party or someone else. Yep. So it was a really good distinction. I think sometimes we need with any, any of these words we're going to talk about mm -hmm. is to get back to actually defining or distinguishing the words that we're trying to use. Look, and that's the challenge because uh, we're under more pressure than we've ever been. We've got less time than we've ever had. And we don't typically have the time to, to, to use the old weasel word, deep dive, yeah. <laughs> to, to actually determine what we mean by that. And, and I was just thinking about what you were saying there about collaboration because that's the only time that you can have a true win-win outcome. Everything else is you're deluding yourself if you've got a true win, where both parties get something from it. It doesn't have to be an equal spread. People think that win-win is about sharing and touchy-feely. It's not like that at all. It's mm. about both being realistic about what we can take from this communication, whether it's a deal, whether it's about divvying up the pie, whatever it may be. Well, they used a particularly good example, which is two automotive manufacturers working on an engine technology that they would both use, mm -hmm. that either one of them alone couldn't actually crack the problem, but together they could, but both would then benefit from this technology. Yes. When you use it in marketing and you're talking about a marketer collaborating, in mm -hmm. quotes, with their suppliers, in actual fact, the supplier is just providing a service and any benefit would be they get paid to do it. Yes. There is no actual benefit from the collaboration yep. that they directly benefit from other than being paid the service. Look, and it requires trust. Absolutely. And, and if I, through my years of researching creating win-win outcomes, collaborative, you know, some talk about collaborative competition, 
can you have that? <laughs> Perhaps you can. I um, doubt it. <laughs> well, because the nature of the competition means that trust is often undermined. It, look, it, it can be. It yeah. can be. I mean, I, I suppose when you look at um, uh, Apple and Microsoft eventually deciding to, to collaborate in various areas, mm-hmm. don't know about the trust there. Yeah. So uh, leadership, I know, is a particular focus of the work that you do, John. It um, is. But leadership itself has become a misleading and deceptive word. Look, look, look it has. I mean, the, the term and the language of leadership can be a bit confusing. Uh, common day language, it's not really used every day. It's not something we experience. We, we see it, we ascribe leadership to military leaders, to political leaders, maybe even community leaders. Uh, but in the boardroom, we use that language, but that's not what we experience. No. So, so, you know, I introduced myself as your leader. Pompous. What is it? Take, take me to your leader. Take me to the leader, exactly. Or in politics, it's lead me to your taker. Lead me to, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, more true. So, so, over the last, well, started in the 70s and then moved into the 80s and developed in the 90s, this this whole concept of, of leadership, it's, it's a big beast now. And, and whole HR departments and divisions have grown on the back of attracting leaders. Um, they're into talent management now and everything's about the leader of the future, pathway to leadership. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not being cynical about the, the idea of leadership. It just it gives a degree of complexity and difficulty because there is so much to cut through when we've got a universal language that we don't, at, in, at work, that we don't use every day. Because mm. you know? at a very simplistic view, a leader requires requires people to follow them. Right? Look, at, yes. at a very, but it's been redefined and reframed mm. so that that means things like a leader is someone that uh, uh, gets the best out of the people mm-hmm. that uh, that are following them. Or, yes, you know, and and so it becomes quite confusing. Well, there's it? different models, and you get uh, some companies subscribe to different models. So uh, the old style heroic leader like Jack Welsh and some of the great Lee Iacocca, they were great heroic leaders. So when they left, it was really hard to replace them because they were such powerful individuals. It leaves a vacuum. It does leave a vacuum. And even with great processes like Six Sigma, which is probably a weasel word in its own right, (laughs) um, it it becomes a challenge. Mm. So then at the other end of that, we have servant leadership. Mm. Uh, often associated with the the Christian model, you know. Apparently, Christ was the the greatest uh, servant leader, but servant leadership is something that's uh, very popular uh, across the the boardrooms at the moment. Uh, even although you you drive, uh, the idea is that you're in it together. Mm. So the so you become a servant leader, and that requires a whole different language, a whole different philosophy. Mm. So uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know. The fact that leadership has become such a big topic, uh, you you mentioned before that you Googled leadership. Um, what was the result? Well, well, look again. Google gave forty three billion hits on leadership. So, wow. so, so you think from that, and that goes from everything ranging from the great academic institutions where you can go and you can study leadership at the academic level, and I, I think there's a value to that, uh, right the way through to. Organisations now that can be set up by the ex-sales manager of a certain company is now a, a leadership consultant and is now <laughs> advising people on how to be a leader. Now, I'm not saying that person doesn't have any value, 
But because of the restriction, the limited barriers to entry, wonderful digital technology, you know, somebody can set up today and be a leadership consultant with a wonderful website tomorrow. Of course, the other uh, area that um, leadership has become, let's say, debased is the term thought leader. Yes. You know, and especially I love self-appointed thought leaders. Yes. You know, I'm a thought leader. Yeah. It's a bit like you said before, you know, even if you said I'm your leader, mm-hmm. that sounds a bit pompous mm-hmm. or that you're a bit up yourself. Yeah. But when people, and you see this on LinkedIn and the like, people going, I'm a thought leader. Yeah. You know, what do you think about look, that? Look, I think it's a weasel word. I think it's a classic weasel word. And I genuinely, do I know what that means? I think I could probably, I do know what it means and we would agree but is that a thought leader in the technical field that you're in? Are you a thought leader in processes and systems? Are you a thought leader? So is a thought leader an expert? I don't know. I mean, to me, why not use words that define what you do? I think it, it needs to be something that's bestowed on someone from others. But self-proclaimed is where you really are out there on the edge of you know, lacking credibility. Look, look, look I agree, and I, I, I don't know why I had a flashback. I don't often remember too much about politicians, but I think, well, it was Julia Gillard who, once taking the leadership, said, you will see a different Julia. And I, I think she regretted that, and I think she's looked back on that. So that's a leader saying, you will see something different in me. And, and you're right, those proclamations mm. don't bode well. I think... What needs to happen is you demonstrate the leaders of behaviour, uh, the, the the behaviours of a leader, and as a result of that, that's then bestowed upon you. People will then see you as their leader. What about uh, another term that I love when people talk about authentic brands, yes, or authenticity yes. as a attribute? What's your feeling about authenticity? Or, or perhaps we should start with a definition. Do you have a working definition for yourself? Well, well, look, my working definition of a person who's being authentic is somebody who who behaves in a way that they have said that they'll behave. Yeah. So in accordance with their values. So these are my espoused values, honesty, fairness, integrity, a whole lot of really good potential weasel words. And then I behave in that way. And that is the authentic you. Um, you go to pop culture and be yourself, be yourself, girl. You know, all those cliches that come down. And that's what authentic means. Yeah, uh, my, my go-to definition is you are your word. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a nice word. The, the things you say are the things you do. Mm-hmm. And that if at any point you're not authentic, then you have to re-establish authenticity. It's not something you have or don't have. Mm-hmm. It's a state that you know everyone drifts in and out of at and any particular time. Look, and it's a challenge to be authentic because... You as a leader will have pressures to deliver. Um, if you're in big organisations, you've got you've got shareholders, you've got mm. share prices, and if you've got a whole host of values that are stacked up there, and that's where I think the cynicism comes in: honesty, integrity, openness. The minute that you don't behave in a in, in a way that represents some of those values, you are then immediately not authentic. It's funny how it, um, it, it has lost its meaning because I had a conversation once with a, a CEO of a very large company and he defined authenticity because I asked what his go-to definition was. He said, that's making the tough decisions. Okay. And I went, no, hmm. that's making the tough decisions. Yeah. Um, 
you know, how do you see that as authenticity? Because you're being authentic to yourself by making the tough decisions. Mm. And I'm going, I think you've conflated a number of different things mm. there and ended up with that because it's convenient. But it's actually being your word. Yes. I shared my definition, which quite confused him. Mm, interesting. Because you exercised a, a skill there which I think is valuable. You listened. And that's what I think a lot of people don't do. You know, if you, if I, you listen to his definition and you're able to reflect on that. And, and that's really one of the, I think, the skills of, of leaders that they really underutilize. What's uh, what's another term for you that really jumps out? What, uh... Well, there's there's a number of things that we've we've been looking at, but um, the whole concept of ethics. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I'll have to declare here that uh, myself personally and Trinity P3 are members of the Ethics Alliance, part of the Ethics Centre. Oh. Uh, 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 here in Sydney. Impressive. So That's uh, Simon Simon Longstaff. Long, Simon Longstaff is the chair. Ah, right. Look, look, I mean, and and also I believe that isn't it the only hotline, free hotline in the world, where an individual can ring up with an ethical dilemma and get some advice. It is. So what what a, a marvelous you know uh, opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a terrific organisation to belong to and, and terrific um, uh, discussions around the whole area of ethics. But it's interesting how even ethics, the term itself, is become conflated with a whole lot of other things it or sure even um, bastardised yes. to mean something completely different. Yeah, look, I mean, it's not just for philosophers, uh, but you do need time. And what I tend to like about the ethics centre approach is that my understanding, and you, you should know more than me about this seeing that you're involved with them, is that um, they commit to needing a framework to be able to make ethical decisions. And the framework that they offer is not a moral framework. So even if you look what happened over the previous years within schools, the, the idea that um, they were teaching ethics classes in the schools, somehow that became anti-religious and they were having ethics classes in replace of religion classes. Now, now that's a conversation that's just, I just find it almost impossible to believe how, how that was allowed to happen. Should it be in replace of religion? Absolutely not. Should it be alongside religion? Absolutely yes. Well, because you know, religion is a belief system, whereas ethics is about considerations of the decisions and actions that you take and the impact that that has on others. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Um, in fact, they've launched a uh, ethical decision-making framework which allows people to go through a series of discussions and conversations to really consider a ethical problem or dilemma or decision from a multitude of different frameworks or perspectives to be able to make that decision. Mm. But where have you seen ethics used in a way that's particularly uh, misleading? Oh, look, uh, I mean, just look what's been happening in the, with the banks recently. Uh, and what I, I, I wrote a couple of quotes down. I kept them old quotes. So here's an example. Here's an example of weasel words mm -hmm. infiltrating banking or any other business. So this was 2016, so maybe it's... 
So clearly there have been some negative stories about various players in the industry, and that's really unfortunate because it does damage people's trust in the community. Now that's from a CEO of one of the biggest big four, so some negative stories. Now this is the then the Australian Bankers Association chief talks about legitimate concerns and inappropriate behaviour. So this is how it transpired. The industry knows that ensuring the integrity of the banking system is vital for all participants, including customers and banks themselves. Banks support the core of the economy and highly value their social licence to operate. Banks will continue to work with regulators to address any legitimate concerns with inappropriate behaviour or misconduct. You know, so banks have shown in the past that they will act when they're made aware of behaviour contrary to their values and codes of contact. I mean, Don Watson would have it. That is just full of absolute weasel words. <laughs> it is the whole thing. Absolutely. You know, and and uh, again, look, it's one of those ones you rest your case. So, and but every walk of life. I mean, e- even in the less insidious areas, you, you know, how many vision statements and mission statements do you read that are full of weasel words? Marketing statements. I mean, marketing briefs. Yeah. You know, just let's work hard. To, there was a, a movement a few years ago that uh, uh, called the Plain English Movement. Mm-hmm. And I know legal firms tried, and that's a little bit of an irony in its own right. And, and I've consistently tried, and people I work with you know, just sometimes find it nauseatingly painful that I can't help reading something. Now, I'm not a writer, but what I'm able to do is to say there's 40 words there. 20 of them are just padding. What are you saying? And so constantly trying and pushing people. And my, my kids actually, I think, like me for it now, now that they've grown up. But it's one of those areas. It's not grammar. It's not punctuation, which I do have a penchant for as well. But I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of that. Uh, but, you know, it, but weasel words, it, it, I find myself using them. You, you, it's just part of everyday life. It's corporate speak. And you've got to be vigilant. Do you think part of it is in some ways... You know, the whole move towards political correctness can uh, have people avoiding what they truly want to say because of the fear of uh, upsetting or offending someone. So they rely on weasel words yes. as a way of softening the blow, as well as the use of them to actually just purely mislead people. Yeah, look, even the term political correctness, that's a semantically loaded term. So the fact that we've even used that term, we're immediately into a discussion around... Yeah, because what's the opposite? Yeah. Politically incorrect. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And people jump on the bandwagon. So you've got whether what, what terminology do we talk about the alt-right? They love getting on there and they talk about um, uh, political correctness. I mean, I think Jordan Peterson at, at the moment, you know, he's got a lot of fans that he doesn't want. And I think when you actually look at his theories at the most basic and don't make any judgments, he's talking about um, the, the language uh, of, of the left. He's talking about not wanting language and public language imposed upon him. Mm. And of course, he now becomes a, a flag carrier for anti-political correctness. So, so it's hard not to digress. So you come back from that political mm. correctness. And I think you're absolutely right. For whatever reason, I think we're concerned about offending people. And if we're concerned about offending people, we use passive language. Passive language is what weasel words are all about. And you're a, you're a, you're a writer. And even I'm amazed that I've worked with quite 
well-educated people and I'll often say to them, look, that's a really nice piece of uh, script there or whatever, just make the language a bit more active and less passive. And they typically don't know what you mean. You have to explain what active language is as opposed to passive language. Hmm. Um, because on um, Stephen Fry yes. is a big anti-political correctness advocate. You know, he he believes that public discourse has suffered because people are so worried about offending that they actually stop communicating because they obscure the true meaning. Yes. That we cannot have the conversations that we need to have because these words get in the way of truly communicating. Agreed. And look, and I don't think you could get anybody or a smarter. He's really he's got the brain the size of a planet. He is an incredibly inclusive human being. And, and I think it's positive that you get somebody like Stephen Fry, you know, waving that banner to talk about the downside of that. Another great one, sadly, is past now is Christopher Hitchens. Mm. And he was a, a great provocateur and had many, many discussions on religion, on political correctness. Sometimes you could, you could see he was just really getting in there to play devil's advocate. But I think we need to have, we need to have this discussion around it. And I think that's where weasel words do infiltrate. Do you think it's particularly uh, evident in marketing because there is a need, or not just marketing, advertising. When you're selling or positioning your product to the consumer, you, there's a certain level of, I know legally they call it puffery. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, there's some hyperbole. There's, um, uh, you know, f fluff that comes with the way you communicate that beyond the advertising itself has become part of the industry as well. Well, look, I, I think you've got that there's, there's more than two elements to that. But what the outcome or the product is one thing and absolutely right, there's a challenge. But you go to the inner workings of a marketing department and everything that is displayed in the communication is displayed in the everyday life. Uh, we, we need to be innovative. Well, what does in innovative mean? You know, so it's, and there's all sorts of weasel words around innovation. Um, so it, it's, it's just with us every single day and we just need to be mindful. Creativity. Look, exactly, exactly the same. And look, at, so how would you define innovation? To me, innovation is applied creativity. So I think there's lots of creative people who have wonderful ideas, and that's great. You know, artists, etc. they're not really looking at applying that, but it's not innovative unless it's found a purpose, and that purpose is productive. So again, you, you sit down and, and there is no agreed definition of all the language around innovation and marketing. So you can go from one division to another, from one company to another, and you're consistently revisiting and consistently putting out mixed messages. Because you know, I was uh, a copywriter, creative director for 15 years, um, and I look back on that and the audacity of actually working in the creative department, because you would say from a industrial point of view, that means that that's where creativity exists. Does that mean that nowhere else within the organization that creativity occurs? Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's interesting, there was, um, may have been Bryce Courtney or one of his genre, because he was an ex-copywriter, and 
and turned up to work one day and it said creative department and thought that was really interesting because I thought everybody was meant to be creative. Does that mean that nobody else, that, that anybody that doesn't go through that door can't be creative? Mm. But, but I think that the challenge is, and there was a, uh, a Harvard Business Review article out not too long ago that, that looked at the challenge of innovation and creativity and usually there's a lack of analysis and stati uh, statistical data and these great researchers found that if there's a lack of it, we resort to three linguistic uh, modes. One is we use metaphor, mm -hmm. hyperbole, and revisionist rhetoric, which I love that word. <laughs> that, <laughs> revisionist that, rhetoric? I mean, I think that could be a, a weasel word in its own right. Uh, but, I mean, an example of that, look, the product was part of a natural evolution or uh, an intriguing concept but failed to create a true revolution in consumer behaviour. <laughs> it failed. It failed. <laughs> it, it, exactly that. So, so and was again, that revisionist rhetoric? That was revisionist rhetoric. Love it. You know, and metaphors, I think, can be valuable, but they're hackneyed. And uh, the, the trouble with metaphors is we rely on really old metaphors. Metaphors are at their best when we choose a metaphor that's relevant and has, it doesn't have to be brand new, but it's relevant. And so many metaphors just aren't relevant and they, mi they get mixed. No more so than when you see our sporting heroes interview, but we won't we won't come into that. Well, a sport obviously is big for metaphors, but do you have a metaphor that uh, that gets used a lot? Oh God, what moves? The, the particularly because uh, I'll, I'll share with you, it's the burning platform. Yeah, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah For that. me, the burning platform. There it is. There's the platform burning. Are you going to jump or are you all going to burn to death? Yeah. You know? okay. I mean, look, I, I never met a four I didn't like. You know, so. <laughs> and there's actually a book titled that, and I've, I found it in a second-hand bookshop in Adelaide, I think. And Look, look um, I, I think it's, it's the hackneyed ones. I, I think the, 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 the metaphors around sport, I think, can, can be a bit destructive. Because, I love, look, I'm an ex-rugby player, you know, so I, I love being in the heat of battle and in my younger days, loved that. But unfortunately, those metaphors are all about win-lose outcomes. So if I win a game, you know you've lost and vice versa. So when we bring those metaphors into business, the challenge is... It becomes win-lose. And we don't collaborate. Mm. So you don't collaborate on a pitch. And, and that's good. I love the idea of sport, whether it's tennis, hockey, it doesn't matter. Well, marketing is full of war and military metaphors, you know, target audiences, campaigns, you know, yeah. mounting campaigns. Exactly that. If you took it literally, the role of marketing is to declare war against your customers <laughs> and uh, mount a campaign having targeted the ones that you're going to take out yes. and uh, basically conquer them. Well, exactly that. And that flies in the face of customer centricity. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they know who they are and they're going to get them. <laughs> well, exactly that. You know, I mean, I've, maybe we are digressing, but I often ask, um, particularly when I'm dealing with companies that I would call marketing driven companies rather than, say, sales driven businesses and marketing driven companies, company like Sony probably. But I ask them and I consciously don't interrupt. And sometimes a very senior player, not necessarily a marketer, they'll talk for. 10 minutes or so and I'll hear about the, 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 the product, I'll hear about the supply chain, I'll hear about exit. And then after a while I say, well, what about your customer? And they go, oh yeah, of course we've got a customer. <laughs> and, and, and these are companies that espouse being customer centric. And when you talk to them, you don't, they don't 
mention the customer unless you prove them. That's interesting. Well, look, that's that's great because it leads me to my next particular bugbear. Oh, yes. And that's the word strategy. Oh, strategy. Everything is a strategy. You know, you've got a social media strategy. You've got your activation strategy, your media strategy, your channel strategy, your comms strategy, marketing strategy, your digital strategy. Everything's a strategy. Mm. Look, it is. And and again, going back to days in in the agency world, I mean, I, I can remember having full-on discussions about let, what is, let's define strategy. And and often it would be Winston Churchill's definition, you know, the, the strategy is to, uh, is to have a, an impact upon the, the, the masses to make them feel downtrodden, depressed, etc. So that's a strategy. And what's the tactic? Well, you, you bomb, you broad bomb. Now, again, that's another example. It's a, it's a war metaphor. Yeah. And that was the one that people seemed to get. So, so constantly, you're absolutely right, that the word strategy are potentially is a weasel word um, because people say, even when you're talking, what's our strategy? What they're asking for is a plan. Well, in the book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, mm-hmm. I think uh, for me is given me my working definition, which is coming up with a solution that best deploys the resources available to me, mm-hmm. money, time, whatever that is, to deliver the solution by telling me also or informing me of all the things that I shouldn't do. Yes. So good strategy doesn't just say, here's the plan or here's the solution. It also tells me, don't waste my valuable resources on doing all these other things. Mm -hmm. The thing that bugs me is that as soon as you put the word strategy with a particular focus, so, you know, like social media strategy. I say to clients all the time, if you're talking to a social media strategist, tell me the one that is not recommending social media. Yes. Right? Because really, it should be social media salesperson. Mm -hmm. Because by calling themselves a strategist, they're really not giving you a strategy. They've got a particular channel Mm -hmm. that they're going to advise you to use. Yes. Whereas great strategy would actually say, don't use this. Yeah. And I've yet to meet a specialist strategist that is not recommending their channel. Yeah, well, that's that. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> but I also think there's something about strategy that makes people feel that they're more important. Yeah, oh, look, it's one of those words that you do feel more important and you do feel more intelligent. And that's where. The area of strategy probably has as many weasel words as you can find. I mean, you, you think of um, things like um, global reach, changing paradigms, paradigm shift, you know, all, all of those words that we use every day, which may or may not mean the same thing. Mm. So there's just, you, you it, it's full of it. And, and you read, and um, what was it somebody said to me, we've got a statement of strategic intent. I said, well, that, that sounds good. What is, that? is that your strategy? <laughs> yeah, that's our strategy. But to say it's a, a statement of strategic intent, that, that sounds a bit smarter. Yeah, yeah. it's actually, well, no, we've got an intention to do yeah, something. Exactly. And that is to get a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got it agreed yet. And look, and that's, that's the problem, isn't it? I, I, and then I, I won't go into the strategy because it would be too obvious, but it was full of it. It was full of it. Exactly. In fact, uh, the other thing about great strategy is that it is incredibly simple to articulate because it is quite focused in the way that it points the solution. Mm -hmm. 
And so when I hear about strategy decks that are you know, 200 pages of analysis, that may be the inputs into the strategy, mm-hmm. but the strategy should be articulated in one page. Look, at, look, and the challenge as well is that some of the best operators I've worked with have really taken that one page to one sentence. Mm. And can you almost take that to, to a couple of words? And that doesn't mean to say that will be your communication, but if you can distill that in its simplest form, that's when you have the essence. That's when you have focus. And that's when it's easier to lead. John, uh, we've just scratched the surface. And we have. Uh, I've noticed we're running out of time. So, uh, look, um, you know, is there something that you would, some advice that you could give people about how to avoid the weasel words and really focus on how to become more effective communicators? Well, look, first of all, it's awareness. And look, and, and there's a couple, I've got a couple written here. So, so, I mean, I'm just, if you hear somebody say, if somebody asks a question and you say, I haven't had any visibility on that, you know, what, what are they saying? I don't know. You know? Yeah. Or um, it's a principle we will be cascading throughout the company. You know, so, 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 again, just be mindful, be aware of when passive language is being used when you feel that people are deliberately avoiding an answer and you've got to watch the politicians every night and in, in a, an appropriate way challenge them on that and, and go back and say look what do you mean by that what's behind that so so often people will make a statement and if you can build rapport and trust and start to ask challenging questions look you look you've said that but what's behind that statement so first of all it's, it's awareness look and also I, I think it takes time and People, I think, need to be spending a bit more time thinking about how they can write more effectively and, you know, to make things more simple. And I would suggest that, and you can do this now, you can go online, more and more people are doing that. A writing course will help you, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, uh, and that might translate perhaps into the way that you speak. Yeah. So, so it's, it's tough, it, and it's a leader's role to do this. It's hard for you to do this from the, from the bottom or even the middle, but I would put the challenge out there to leaders um, to make a commitment to try and get rid of weasel words, be authentic, i.e. the definition, you yeah. know, be yourself. Have integrity. Have integrity. And all, everything that we've spoken about... <laughs> Live your value statement. <laughs> look, 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 all of those, and, and the danger is you find yourself getting into those cliched weasel word statements. Yeah. Um, so everything we've spoken about on the surface is, is fairly straightforward. But when you drill down, there's a real complexity, a minefield of semantically loaded words. And it, 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 I think it can take a, a commitment. I mean, it's taken us maybe 40 years to develop this. And the, the challenge is... Uh, weaning ourselves off it. Well, weaning ourselves off it, but I mean, a, a creative director that I worked with for many years, who shall remain nameless, said that if a problem continues to exist, it's suiting somebody somewhere. Yeah. You know, and that True. was always the case. And, and I think as a problem, people don't even see it as a problem. They, they, they live with all of those. I mean, something like, maybe to finish, I heard somebody said, oh, they're, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. So drinking the Kool-Aid was meant to be a good thing. I said, well, hang on a minute. Didn't, didn't the people that... Jonestown. Jonestown didn't the people who drink <laughs> they the, drank Kool-Aid, the Kool-Aid, they died. So you've gone from be wary of drinking the Kool-Aid, which I think is why it first came in, 
And now there's a whole generation of people who think, oh yeah, we were there, we drank the Kool-Aid, so we're now imbibed with the, the brand. That's interesting because I actually always took drinking the Kool-Aid, meaning you believe this so much, you're willing to drink the Kool-Aid even if it kills you. Yeah, look, it could be, there you go. So there's another. So that was my interpretation. It could very well be it, so. Look, um, before we finish up, I just want to thank everyone that responded on LinkedIn with uh, weasel words that they want us to uh, discuss. But I'll I'll just, uh, one last question, and that is uh, of all of the active leaders and, and people in our society, which one do you think is the biggest weasel?